Trinity Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, good morning. It is truly great that we have the opportunity to be together again today. Um, I'm so thankful that uh, God has set up the circumstances uh, for us to spend the last seven weeks together looking at the incredible truth of this book of 1 John. And uh, if you have been with us the last several weeks, then you know that 1 John was a letter written by the Apostle John to the churches that he pastored in the first century. And it's been preserved for us today. Uh, and the central message that John wanted to communicate to the uh, congregations that he pastored and that God wants us to hear from this book is that we can have an intimate relationship with the Savior. Not just a one-time event in our past, not just a membership of some group that he leads, but an ongoing personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, this is something that John had during his earthly life, and he says that it's something that we can have as well. And he unfolds over the pages of the book of 1 John um, how that is possible. And we've seen over the last several weeks that this intimate relationship with Christ is found in light and not in darkness. It's found in confession and not in perfection. It's found in His work and not in ours. And it's found in obedience and not just in information. And this obedience is obedience to old school kinds of things like loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, which is something that is made possible because God has placed His Spirit within us that we might resemble our Heavenly Father as we love others in dependence upon Him. And we've seen how there are some things that are temptations for us in this world's fair that we can overcome in Christ as we live in light of His second coming. And as we ID ideas and compare them to God's truth. Uh, this is what we've been looking at over the last six weeks in our study of 1 John. And we've got one more section of the book to look at this morning in our time together. And uh, before we open it up and look at it, I, I just was mindful this week of one of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite uh, professors in seminary, a man named John Hanna. Uh, Dr. Hannah described preaching in this way. He said, it is my goal when I preach to create a category called Christ, and if the Spirit would bless it to make it beautiful, that it would influence our affections because we choose what we like. And you know, it's, it's my hope and prayer today that as we look at this section of God's Word that we're going to see today, that we would see more clearly Christ that the Spirit would draw us to Him in a powerful way that we might choose to follow Him all of our days. We might choose to live in this intimate relationship with Him. Um, so before we open up God's Word together, let me pray. Father, we come to You now asking Your Spirit to bless this message. Father, to take it and make it alive to paint a picture through the, the, the words of 1 John chapter 5 and the things that we share that we might see more clearly the reality of Jesus Christ. Father, may we walk away today with a clear and captivating picture of Him. 
that we would trust and follow you more, not just in the confines of an hour-long service, but in the day-to-day reality of our lives. Father, I pray that you would be our teacher today and that you would protect me from saying anything you wouldn't want said. But Father, if I do say something you wouldn't want said, I pray that it would just quickly be forgotten. But anything I share today, Father, that you would want us to hear, I pray that we would remember it and we would believe it and we'd walk forward in it in the power of your Spirit that we might be shaped more into the image of your Son. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, in the 1960s, we pulled up a chair and we watched as Atticus Finch argued for an innocent man named Tom Robinson uh, and argued for his innocence in a court of law. Uh, We heard Atticus share homespun wisdom that told us things like, you can kill all the blue jays that you want, but it's a sin to kill a mockingbird. And uh, we saw this in the 1960s in the adaptation of Harper Lee's great novel. Uh, In the 1990s, we sat on the edge of our seat as we watched Lieutenant Kathy stare down Colonel Nathan R. Jessup, United States Marine Corps. And he was arguing that Colonel Jessup had ordered a code red that had resulted in the death of Private William Santiago. And we sat on the edge of our seats wondering if Jessup was eventually going to break. And then in the 2000s, we followed Mark Zuckerberg from deposition to deposition as he was being sued by seemingly everyone he'd ever come in contact with in the social network over the origination of Facebook. Uh, He was sued by the Winklevoss twins. Great line from the movie. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg in the movie calls him the Winklevi. I thought that was good. Anyway, um, we watch as he is sued, and, and, you know, it's it's another one of these courtroom dramas. You know, when when you see a phenomena of a story that has a root in culture, over this many years, we have, to, we have to believe that there is something inside of us that these stories appeal to. Uh, these courtroom dramas, these moments where characters we care about are sitting on the brink between life and death, where a group of men and women are going to, t- to determine their fate based on the evidence that is presented in the courtroom. We watch these movies, we memorize their lines, we we understand their stories because we want to see justice carried out and we want to see the jury make the right decision. We love courtroom dramas. And the reason why I I go through that story today is because as I look at the pages of 1 John chapter 5, I see another courtroom drama unfold. Uh, This courtroom drama is not something involving two members of John's congregation in the first century, but this is a case that is more cosmic than that. Uh, The courtroom drama that we see is of evidence that is being presented about the person of Jesus Christ and being presented to us as the jury to make a determination about who he is. And the stakes are high. Not just life in prison, but life itself, eternal life. Your eternal life and mine is hinged upon how we answer the question, 
who is Jesus Christ? And in the courtroom of life, exhibit A, which is the life of Christ, is presented to us in great detail and in great evidence by the God of the universe on the pages of Scripture, and we're asked to make a decision. And today in 1 John chapter 5, we're going to look at at just that. Uh, Before we open up to 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 to 13, I have to ask you this question. Um, Do you want some information? Do you want answers? Do you want the truth? You can't handle the truth. No, just kidding. Um, You can handle this. I'm confident. We're going to look at 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 to 13. And as we see in these seven verses, we're going to see two truths, two things that we need to look at and to understand um, if we are to respond rightly to the person of Jesus Christ. Two things that we're going to see. Well, the first thing we're going to see is this, that, that after years of testimony, the defense presentation of the life of Christ rests. After years of testimony, the defense rests. There is a case that was unfolded for us on the person of Christ through his earthly life and ministry, and we are now in a position to make a decision. Well, where do we see that on the pages of Scripture? We see that, first of all, unfolding in 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. This is what it says in those verses. It says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Now, in those uh, first few verses of this section, um, some scholars have called them the most enigmatic verses in all of John's writing. Uh, it, it just seems a little odd that he's saying that there are these testimonies, these witnesses about the person of Christ, and he identifies them as water and blood and spirit. Now, the spirit makes some sense to us, but the, the indication of water and blood seems a little confusing. So it's helpful for us to think, what is it that John is trying to get at by saying that there is a testimony about the person of Christ? There was evidence that is laid out about the person of Christ in water and in blood. And I think the the picture that we see there is a picture of Jesus' earthly ministry. It's exhibit A in John's argument. Jesus' earthly ministry, which spanned approximately three years from the time he was roughly 30 to the time he was roughly 33 years old. This public ministry is the time upon which most of the Gospels are written. They're, They're referencing this era of his life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Primarily, There are some things written about his birth, but primarily what we see in the Gospels has to do with the earthly ministry of Christ. And the, the earthly ministry of Christ is bookended by two key events. On the front end, the earthly ministry of Christ began with the water baptism of Christ. Uh, John, the same John who wrote the book of 1 John, says this, in John chapter 1, verses 32 through 34. Now, John the Apostle is writing in verse 32 through 34 about John the Baptist, different John, who met Jesus in the Jordan River. 
This is what it says in, in John chapter 1, verse 32. It says, And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. See, there was a key event at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry that centered around water. When Jesus decided it's time for me to go and to begin proclaiming and preaching and doing miracles and all the things that we associate with the life of Christ, when Jesus decided it was time to do that, the very first thing he did was he went to the Jordan River and he met John there and John baptized him. It was an event that involved water. And so when John writes in 1 John chapter uh, 5 about this testimony, this witness, this evidence about the person of Christ involving water, I believe he's referring to the water baptism of Christ at the front end of his earthly ministry. And, and God gave witness or testimony or evidence to the personal identity of Christ at that event. Uh, the Spirit comes down on him in a visible fashion like a dove. Uh, God speaks from heaven, Behold, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. John looks at this situation, John the Baptist, and says, Behold the Son of God. There was supernatural testimony and evidence at the beginning of Jesus' ministry as to the identity of Christ. So when John says that Jesus came and his ministry and his identity was attested to by water, I think he's referring to the beginning event in the ministry, the public ministry of Christ, which is his water baptism. So what about the blood? Well, the blood refers to the ending bookend of Jesus' earthly life. And that event, of course, is his death when his blood was shed. Uh, John writes in John chapter 19, Beginning in verse 34, he says this. He says, But one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. This is while Christ is hanging on the cross. And he who saw it has borne witness. John speaking of himself here. He was at the cross. John says, My testimony is true, and I know that I'm telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. You see, the, the evidence and the testimony about the identity of Christ begins over here in his public ministry with his baptism, but it continues with the shedding of his blood on the cross. The centurion and John and others looking on to this scene at the cross, look at Jesus hanging there, look at the way that he died and the way that he interacted with people and the events that transpired, including the temple curtain being torn in two and an earthquake and the sky growing black at midday. And all of those events are transpiring. And, and God was yelling at the world at that point, shouting out, presenting this evidence that Jesus was a unique person. He was the Son of God. He was someone whose life we must reckon with, we must do something with. There was something specific about his life. And so we see at one end we have water in the baptism, at the other end we have blood in the death of Christ. And both of those testimonies communicate the same thing, that Jesus is the Son of God. But there's a third witness that is mentioned, and that witness is of 
the Holy Spirit. John wrote of the Holy Spirit, quoting Jesus in John chapter 15, verse 26, when he says, but when the Helper, or the Holy Spirit, comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. You see, between the water and the blood, the Spirit of God was shining a spotlight on Christ. So that when people saw all of the ministry that Jesus did and all of the sermons that he taught and all of the people that he healed and all the disciples that he led and and all of all that that's going on, the Spirit of God is shining on him saying, look at who this is. This is the Son of God. This ministry of the Holy Spirit continues on today. The Holy Spirit resides within the lives of believers today, shining a spotlight for us on the person of Christ. It's, it's, it's really important, I think, for us to understand what the role of the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is someone, part of the Godhead, fully God, but whose job within the Trinity is to shine a light on Christ. You know, anytime we ever think that the, the Holy Spirit exists for the Holy Spirit's sake, we miss the point. Jesus says the Spirit comes to let people know about me. Jesus says, my life is to give glory to the Father. There's a a functional working within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. But the Spirit's job is to shine a spotlight on Jesus Christ. And so when when you see this this situation unfold, you see these these bookending events of water and, and blood, and then you have Spirit ministering over the top of all of that. And what John is saying is that God has presented exhibit A to the world about who Jesus is. He provided all of this evidence for us, recorded in the pages of the Gospels, so that we, when we look at it, the Spirit might shine a spotlight on it for us so that we might get a clear understanding of who Jesus Christ is and so that we might respond in an appropriate way. And what's fascinating to me about this is that after saying that God presented us this evidence about the person of Christ, after saying that when we look at the person of Christ, we understand certain things about the identity of of Christ and about how people might have a relationship with God. I mean, think of the things that we know by looking at the life of Christ as the Spirit shines its light on there. Because of Jesus' miracles, we understand that God is compassionate. We understand that he's powerful. We understand that he cares about us. By looking at his teaching, we understand that God is holy and that we're not, and the separation between God and man exists, and it's, it's greater even than we thought. Looking at his, his death, we understand that even though this, this great gulf that separates God from man, that God is aware of that, and he still loves us, and he still desires to, to reach out to us, and so he sent his son to live a perfect and sinless life to die on the cross, taking the penalty that your sins and mine deserve so that we might have a way to have a relationship with him. But we see that the resurrection of Christ, when we look at that, God gave us that that truth so that we would understand that we have hope for life after death, that our hope is not dead, it is alive. When we see that Jesus spent time with his disciples, we understand that he cares about us and he wants to involve us in his mission and in his purpose. See, we have been given this incredible evidence about the person of Christ. 
It has been communicated to us. It has been laid out before us that we might make a decision regarding it. That we might go into the jury room of our soul and determine what we will do on an individual basis with the evidence, with the testimony about who Christ really is. Back in 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 9, this is how he says it. He says, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. See, what John is getting at there, what he's wanting us to understand is that when we go into recess to the jury room of our soul, to make a determination about what are we going to do with the evidence that is presented to us about the person of Christ. When we go to make that decision, we are not merely making a decision based on the argument of men. We are not merely making a decision based on the testimony of some fishermen from a long time ago, or on the testimony of a pastor in your community or a testimony of somebody you have heard on the radio, when we go to make a determination based on the evidence of Christ, we are literally making a decision based on the testimony of God himself. And if we receive this testimony, if we believe that it's true, the things that are written about Christ in the Gospels, if we receive that into ourselves, then we are saying, God, we agree with you. Your case is convincing. We're going with you in this endeavor. But if we reject Christ... In any way, we're not just rejecting the sermon that somebody has preached. We're not just rejecting the argument of some man. We're not just rejecting something in this world. We're rejecting God himself. We're saying, God, you're a liar when you spoke at his baptism. You're a liar when you shook the earth at his death. You're a liar when your, your spirit shone a light on truth, and I'm rejecting it. See, John doesn't allow people the wiggle room to disagree with individuals. He places them directly before God, and he says, if you are to disagree with the teaching of Scripture regarding the person of Christ, then you're calling God a liar. So here's the situation for us. As we go into recess to the jury room of our soul, to review the case presented about the person of Jesus Christ. We're making a decision on whether we're going to trust God or not. Are we going to trust that God's revelation of Christ is our only hope for salvation as Christ says that it is? Or are we going to reject it? If we do... We're saying, God, you're lying. Your case is just not all that convincing because God did not mince words about the identity of his son or about the way that we relate to him. And here's the other thing. As we go into recess to the jury room of our soul, we must make a decision. We can't just sit idly by while the clock ticks 
Indecision doesn't avoid it. We still have to make it. And, and I think it's important for us to, to, to ponder as Americans today because I think a lot of times we want to have a, a perspective of Christ that merely admires him, just admires him, just from a distance says, you know what, Jesus was, he taught a bunch of great things. He's a great teacher. To say about Jesus, you know, he, he really was kind. To say about Jesus, he really was an influential world figure. To say about Jesus, he's somebody that I might look at for some leadership principles or uh, some kind of ethic for living or whatever like that. You know, Jesus doesn't give us that option. Having a perspective towards the Savior that merely admires him is to call God a liar because it's saying, I'm going to reject all of the testimony you've given about Christ that demands that we do something with him beyond just admire him. The demands that we either say, you are our Lord, we will, we will follow you, you are our only way to have a relationship with the Lord, or we say, you know what, I'm going to go my own way. Now, it's tempting for us to think that we can kind of pick and choose the truths we want to about Christ. But in reality, when we reject something that is taught in Scripture so clearly about who Jesus is and what he's calling us to, what we're doing is we're saying to God, no, you're a liar. I know better. That's a dangerous spot to be in. The question I want to ask you today is, as you go into recess to the jury room of your soul, what's the decision that you've made about Christ? As you look around the table and all the faces look like you, how's the conversation going? Have you failed to make a decision, merely looking on, saying, I admire that man, but have never done anything more than that? Are you sitting there saying, I cannot accept the truth of this book regarding Christ, and regardless of how the Spirit shines, regardless of what God has testified in history, I reject? Or have you? looked at the evidence and said, yes, and placed your faith in him, received that testimony into yourself. You know, as I look at my own life, I spent the first 16 years of my life um, admiring Jesus. I had an, an admiring kind of relationship. I, I grew up in... Uh, a uh, great family. My parents are here today. I'm so thankful that they're here uh, this morning. Uh, but I grew up in the family where it took me to church, and I, I heard Bible stories, and I, I learned things that I've, I've kept with me for, for the rest of my life. But in that time of learning about Christ, my, my attitude towards him was one more of just admiring him, the way somebody would admire Martin Luther King or Mahatma Gandhi or, or whatever. I mean, I just, just admired him. But there's something that happened about when I was 16 years old that I began to understand that who Christ is and what he is calling me to is not just that I would admire him, but he's offering to solve the most fundamental problem that I have, and that's the problem of sin. When I began to see that, and I began to see the reality of who Christ was in Scripture, I was presented with exhibit A of the life of Christ. What was I to do with that? And I, I still remember that night in 1990, and on Easter Sunday, whenever I trusted in Christ and received his forgiveness, accepting the testimony that was given in Scripture. 
And, and because of that, because I spent 16 years in the church without knowing this, not to the fault of the church, just the timetable that God had for me, I have to believe that there are people here today who have been admiring Christ and have never trusted in Him. I challenge everybody here to go into the jury room of your soul. What are you going to do for the person of Christ? The first thing that we're going to see in this passage. The second thing that we're going to see is this. We need to believe his testimony. And when we do, we get to live in his rest. We need to believe his testimony. When we do, we live in his rest. These are some of the most encouraging verses in all of the New Testament. Because this is what it says. If we receive this testimony and we believe it, what happens to us? 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 says this. It says, and this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. What is the dominant word? I mean, when you hear it read aloud, it's, it's really helpful. What is the dominant word that you hear over and over in those verses? Life. Life. What does Jesus want for us? He wants life. You know, sometimes we think what Jesus wants is death. He wants us to, to not do this and not do that and all these kinds of things. No, no, no. What Jesus came to do was he came to give us life. As a matter of fact, you haven't really lived until you've lived with Christ. He is the author and the creator of it. He knows the way that we were intended to live. What God is offering us in Christ is life. And if we believe and accept the testimony of who Christ is, then what God gives us in return is life. It is eternal life. And it's, it's so great, he says, that we get it now. Eternal life is not just something for the future. Eternal life is something that we can grasp right now. And, and the reason why we can grasp it right now is that eternal life is about a relationship with the God of the universe. Look at what the apostle Paul said of his life in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21. Paul says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul was realizing that his days were being numbered, and he's looking at the end of his life, and he says, If I keep on living, I get to keep on living in relationship with Christ. If I die, I get to go be at his side, which is even better. So for, for me, to live life now is to live it in relationship with Christ. To die is to continue in relationship with Christ. This jives exactly with what John said in the Gospel of John, chapter 17 and verse 3. This is a statement that Jesus said of his disciples and followers as he prayed for them in his high priestly prayer. In John 17, 3, Jesus says this, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. See, the, the picture of Eternal life, biblically speaking, is relationship. Relationship with the Savior. We, we've talked all of the last seven weeks about how we have the opportunity to live our life in close fellowship with Christ. What is eternal life? Eternal life is 
living in relationship with Christ. It begins at the moment that we trust Him, and it continues on forever. It is limitless. It knows no end. We have a relationship with the God of the universe that can never be severed. But it begins now. What an awesome gift. And and we have that because we have trusted in His Son. He says, He who has the Son, 1 John 5, has the life. And so if we have trusted in Christ, then we have this life that is promised, this eternal life, this ongoing, forever relationship with the God of the universe. That is something that we have if we have trusted in Christ. And because that, is, that relationship is based on and established upon what Jesus has done for us on the cross, then we can be confident that that relationship is always going to be secure. That's what John says in chapter 5, verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That sounds cocky, doesn't it? We can know that we have eternal life. We can have confidence that our relationship with God will go on in forever. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not cocky if it's true. It's a re- real statement, a real promise that if we have a relationship with Christ, that relationship will never end. Back in chapter 2, verse 25, John says this in 1 John. He says, this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I love this verse, chapter 2, verse 25, because here's the deal. The apostle John who wrote 1 John also wrote 2 John, 3 John, the book of Revelation, and the gospel of John, all told 1,400 verses. He wrote over 1,400 verses in those books. You realize in those 1,400 verses, the apostle John uses the word promise Exactly one time in 1 John chapter 2, verse 25. The promise that we have is eternal life. This doesn't mean that John doesn't talk about other things that Christ promises to us, but because he uses this word so seldom, when we see it on the pages of Scripture, it's like a highlighter yellow written in the original over the top of this saying something really significant is being communicated here. A man that wrote 1,400 sentences that are included in the Bible uses promise once, and here it is, because it's such a blessed understanding of life that only those in Christ can have. We haven't really lived until we have lived in relationship with Christ. And that's something that we have promised to us. Now, when we think of eternal life, something interesting happens to us. Uh, we have a couple of faulty views of eternal life that really shape our understanding of it. Now, one of the views that we have of eternal life um, has to do with the fact that, that eternal life is, doesn't begin now. And we've already talked about that. Eternal life does begin now because it's living in relationship with the Savior. But eternal life begins now. But we, we don't think of that. Sometimes we think of eternal life as beginning at the moment of our death. When we do that, we minimize the importance of eternal life because we're not people that like to wait for stuff. Now, think about that. Why are there credit cards? Why are there home mortgages? Why are there auto loans? All of those things exist because we want to have what we want, and we want to have it now. We don't want to wait for it. We want it now. Um, And things that we have to wait for we sometimes just kind of move out of our mind. 
Um, this is definitely true of children. If you have kids, you know this is true. It's like, can I have this? Can I have this? Can I have this? You can have it tomorrow. Well, that, they don't even want it tomorrow. They don't even want it then. They, if they can't have it now, they don't want it at all. That's the way that we are. And if we forget that eternal life is something we can have now, we can minimize it and not tap into the, the benefits of this ongoing daily relationship with Christ. We will be with him forever and forever begins now. But a second misconception we have about eternal life has to do with the fact that we think that eternal life is, is just quantitative. We think that eternal life just has to do with length. So if we believe in eternal life, we mean that that means we get to live forever. And in most of the pictures of forever that we have involve us sitting on clouds, playing harps, or singing in a choir. So the, seriously, somebody must have thought this before. Forever sounds long and boring, right? Um, if that really was what eternal life was all about, sitting on a cat cloud playing a harp, I don't think I would have used promise the only time in that, in that instance. The reality of what eternal life is, is not that. that. That is some kind of a picture of eternal life that is given to us by the Precious Moments Collection and the good people at Hallmark, okay? Um, Sylvester and Tweety cartoons on Saturday morning. That's where we get that idea. What is the real picture of eternal life? The real picture of eternal life is life spent in relationship with the Savior. Life spent in relationship with the God of the universe. That is what eternal life is. That's a relationship that begins now, but that's a relationship that will go on forever. We'll always be getting to know him. We'll always be getting to spend time with him. And guess what? We get to spend time with him in relationship with him together. All those who trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, we get to have that kind of fellowship with him forever. The implications of that are, are, are pretty obvious. If we're going to be with him forever, let's get to know him now. And if we're going to be with him forever together, we better get to liking each other now. Because we're going to spend forever together. You see, the promise that we have in Christ is of eternal life. And that life begins now. If we believe. When you leave that jury chamber of your soul, having decided your understanding of the evidence, there are implications. If you believe Eternal life is what we're offered. Now we're going to, as we close, I'm going to invite the band to come on up and begin to get settled. But as, as we close, I'm, I just want to share a, a story uh, from something that I that, that, uh, experienced this week. You may have heard that uh, Dave and Amy Wyatt, uh, David Wyatt, he plays bass in our band, not, not today, but... but frequently with us and the worship band. Um, his father, Jim, passed away uh, this past week. And you, you may have, have met Jim. He's been coming to Wildwood for the last several weeks. He was in our starting point class uh, recently. Um, but Jim passed away at the age of 53. And, uh, you know, as, as, as David and Amy were relaying to me just the story of, of Jim's life earlier this week, it was, it was really an amazing story. Because Jim had lived on the planet for 53 years, but something significant had happened in Jim's life just in the last few months as he had begun 
uh, a relationship with the God of the universe through Christ. And, and he, he lived 53 years on the planet with one orientation, but he's lived the last few months trusting in Christ. And, and that decision has, had radically changed a number of different facets of his life. It had changed what he read. It had changed what he listened to. It had changed um, his relationship with his, with his children, with, with, with David. It had changed his, his orientation towards his grandkids. It, 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 all of these things had happened, and it changed his outlook on forever. On the table beside his chair was, was a piece of paper about what it means to be born again. And, you know, when you hear this story about Jim, and you probably react, as I did to some degree, it's like you go, man, he just started living. God, why did you take him now? And as I was thinking about that, that thought and about this passage that we're looking at, this, this is what God was just yelling in my ear. He didn't stop living. He may have just started his eternal life a few months ago, but guess what? He continues it on forever. Jim is with the Lord now. And if we trust in Christ, we can join him there. You know, this morning we're going to end by singing a song that talks about Christ being risen from the dead. As we sing this song, I, there's this incredible lyric in there um, that ties together so much of what we've talked about over the last seven weeks. It says, O church, come stand in the light. Our God is not dead. He's alive. He's alive. And he invites us to live with